we're going to have an incredible interview with the most incredible Joanne Butcher, who has worked in the international film industry for more than 20 years now. Good evening, Joanne Butcher, all the way over there in the United States of America, who is a filmmaker. She's been in the film industry, as I was sharing, for more than 20 years, and she has helped independent filmmakers acquire financing, complete their films and get distribution so their films create successful and profitable films. Super excited to have you, Joanne, with us this evening. Tell us a little bit about your story. Introduce yourself to the audience and to those listening to the Freedom Formula podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Debbie. I'm so excited to be here because freedom is the value that I really care about the most. So it's really lovely that it's called that freedom. And the reason that it is my top value is because I grew up in a home where freedom wasn't really the thing. <laughs> freedom was not part of the, the values that I grew up with. My father and mother had my sister and I in a very strict upbringing. We weren't allowed to play on the street. We weren't allowed to play with the neighbor's kids. We weren't allowed to lock the door. We weren't allowed to have private conversations on the phone with our friends. We weren't allowed those things because there was so much control. And I know that that upbringing has definitely brought me up to be somebody who just values freedom above everything. And I can see clearly and hear clearly from you that the one thing they couldn't stop playing uh, you playing with, and that was your imagination, Joanne. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, as a young child, I taught myself how to type. I found a, a, a book that taught you typing. So I sat in a room by myself and did that. When I taught myself how to read music, I sat in a room by myself and I did that. And I'm somebody who I'm always surprised when I hear people say, oh, I'm bored because I'm like, oh, really? How is that possible? I really haven't ever known what it's like to be bored because I've always found things that were interesting. I read voraciously as a child. I was always studying and I was always very interested in television and very young, I would wake up on Sunday mornings. Debbie, you might remember this, but on Sunday mornings, they had all this stuff on BBC that was not the normal thing. I would get up early on Sunday mornings and I would watch how to speak German. I would learn mit Schlagsahnebitte. <laughs> I would learn these. And, and they had these... Um, World at War, that was the documentary series, World at War, and I would watch that and I learned all about the Holocaust and I've been an avid student of the Holocaust ever since waking up at six o'clock on Sunday mornings and watching those television shows. And I saw that 
television was an incredible educational tool. And uh, so when I went to college, I was already working at uh, a small temp agency organizations, but then I ended up working at the BBC. So every holiday when I was a teenager, I would go and work at the BBC. And that was the only thing I cared about. I, all I cared about in life was working at the BBC. And, but when, by the time I turned 17, things had become very violent at home. And I ended up basically running for my life. And I left home and, and ultimately went to live in Spain for a while. And, and then I ended up moving to America. But my first reason for leaving was because I needed to make sure that I stayed alive. And I, I just wasn't sure that that was going to happen if I stayed at home. So I, I ran because I needed to save my life. And I suspect that there are a lot of people who have gone through that. It sounds like a really strange thing, I think, to most people. But I know, as I've gone through my life, that I've met a lot of people who've had to learn to live without their families uh, and live without family support because it was too dangerous. It's just that it's something that happens for a lot of people. So that was really the beginning of my journey was living in hiding uh, for several years and uh, basically yeah, learning to survive because I had to. And so over, the, over those years, I would say from my early 20s on, Frankly, I really wasn't doing very well. I had a, a drinking problem, a drug problem. And it wasn't until I was 30 when I got sober that I sorted that out and started on a journey of personal development that I've been on for the last 30 plus years. And also in those years, without the drugs and alcohol, the problem was without the drugs and alcohol, I was very depressed and battled that. And now I look at it and I'm like, oh girl, you poor thing. We're 30 years old, sober and without family and afraid of family. It, it's, life is hard. And so the fact that I was depressed, nowadays I look at it and I'm like, that's just not strange at all. Who wouldn't be depressed? In fact, I remember one time going to a, a psychiatrist and he listened to me and he said, well, you're living alone in a foreign country with no family. And so that would be depressing. And I didn't understand it at the time, but now I'm like, yeah, that is depressing. Um, so when I came to America, I was in a graduate program in the University of Miami and I was studying uh, for a master's degree in English and I was invited by some people that I met when I first came to Miami to go and volunteer for this film organization and we started showing films and we would show these small experimental films we were artists with a capital A A A A for artist <laughs> and we would show these uh, experimental art films and 
it was great. And that was the beginning of, of a community. And those people in Miami became my friends and really my first family of choice. And we showed films at this bookstore called Books and Books in Coral Gables in Miami. And they decided they were going to open another bookstore on Miami Beach. And they asked if we'd come with them and we would show our movies there. And so in that store, they had this beautiful Art Deco building. Miami is famous for Art Deco, Miami Beach particularly. And then they had this beautiful Art Deco building with these beautiful 12 foot high windows. And we took one look at that and said, no problem, we can cover that up because for film, you need the dark. So we would cover up these beautiful windows with black plastic and turn it into a cinema. And then we looked and saw that there was a space next door and we opened a cinema. It was called the Alliance Cinema. And it was a first run cinema, which what that means is that we showed movies that, so for example, if you pick up the paper and go to a movie today, it'll be in a first run cinema where they're part of reporting the box office. Every weekend I would have to report our box office money. And during the week I would have to report those numbers. And so we were part of that whole system. So back then it wasn't as the way it is now, but now everybody thinks it's perfectly normal to know how much a film makes every month, every week. Um, you'll read the paper and say such and such a movie made $67 million this weekend. And, and it's it, according to the newspaper, it's never enough. This film, James Bond only made $54 million in its opening weekend or something like that. I just went to see James Bond last night. So thinking of that one, but so we were part of that system and it's called being a first run. And we were very small. We had uh, 79 seats. And we told the distribution companies that we had 100 seats because 100 seats was the minimum to be able to have a first run cinema. That wasn't me. I would never have thought to lie like that. I could never, <laughs> I could never tell a lie. But one of my colleagues told the distributors that. So we were able to get the best films. And uh, they were very art house films. They were very small films. We never got the chance, say, to show a James Bond film. We were showing foreign films. We were showing art house fair. And we dealt with the distribution companies, with the all the press. I also, always knew all the journalists, the movie critics. We dealt with them all the time. And our cinema did incredibly well. People came from far and wide to come to our cinema. We showed films, for example, we showed all, a lot of films that had received four stars in the New York Times. So we would have people driving from, you know, Miami, then Broward County, Palm Beach County. People would drive to see to our cinema because it was the only place they could see those films. And we were just really known for being very high quality. We were known for showing LGBT films before that became a thing. We showed all of Derek Jarman's films, if anybody knows him, a British filmmaker. And we had an 
a stellar reputation, absolutely stellar reputation. And we did really well. And people came, as I said, from all over and we had all kinds of people. We had the young, hip crowd. We had the New York Times reading crowd. We had the, the gay crowd before because Miami didn't have any anything except gay bars. There, there was no cultural um, no cultural offerings for the gay community at that time. This was in the 90s. So we, we were a pioneer, we were a leader. And so we decided to start a film school. So we started a film school and I ran that and hired all the teachers and got the students in and I, I loved it. We taught uh, everybody how to make films. And that was really compelling to me. I have always loved to teach. I've always been a teacher. I was an English teacher back then. And I became a script writing teacher and this uh, film school. And we did some really great programs. We had programs for LGBT leadership through filmmaking. We had a program that I put together for children with cancer, uh, that they made films about their own experiences of cancer and lots of fantastic things. And I was a real leader in the community, a leader in the arts, um, involved on every different level in uh, Miami and Florida as a whole. And finally, I saw that I was running this nonprofit organization eventually and raising about $500,000 a year to run the organization. And I really became a very good fundraiser. And I thought, you know, let me find out what it is that filmmakers really need. And so I went to the those filmmakers in town. There were very few of them, probably less than 10, who had ever made a feature film. And I sat down with them and I did a, a kind of town hall and asked them what it was that they needed. And they said, we need money. And I saw that they didn't know how to raise money. So I started to teach filmmakers how to raise money. I was like, I, needed, I had to raise money to run this $500,000 organization. And I had learned all these fundraising skills and now I was passing them on to filmmakers. And uh, it was funny the other day, I, I'm about to move and I'm going through all my boxes of things. And I, I came across some paperwork and it was, oh, it says here, 2003. I, I put together a statewide film competition and it was called the Sunlight Production Fund. Oh, I had forgotten that. And we gave a prize of $25,000 cash and $175,000 of goods and services to a filmmaker to be able to make a feature film. And I put together this program, which basically explained that the producer needed to apply for this and send in a script. Everybody knows you need a script to make a film. What they don't know is that you need a business plan to make a film. So part of the requirement was that they put together a business plan. It had to have a budget and it had to have all kinds of different pieces. 
And what really the competition was doing was teaching filmmakers how to put together a film in a business sense so that it would actually get made. And we had maybe a, about 100 applicants and we got it down to six finalists. And out of those six finalists, we ended up choosing a winner. And it was an incredibly exciting experience. The, the $175,000 worth of goods and services came from all the different film organizations around the state of Florida. So that included uh, camera houses and sound equipment and costume departments and everything that you needed to make a film. And, and still today, I see short film competitions all the time, but I do not see feature film competitions. It's a very different thing, and it got us extremely well noticed. And at the time, I got the organization teamed up with a national organization that was then called IFP. IFP doesn't really exist anymore, or it just changed its names. But so we teamed up with some other larger organizations around the country. And we started an organization called IFP National, which was designed to help filmmakers online and provide teaching assets online. And it was called IFP.org. And I think you can still be a member of IFP.org from anywhere in the world and get help as a filmmaker. So we started this new organi online organization called IFP National and things were going very well except that they weren't <laughs> and what happened was we were the artists who really created a massive change on Miami Beach and uh, Miami Beach went from being a kind of desert to the booming place that it is today and we did not own our building and we got um, bought out by a very hostile developer who wanted to get rid of us. And so that began probably a year of arriving and finding the trash out on our doorstep and finding uh, people lined up in front of our door so we couldn't get in. A very hostile, very aggressive tactics to get us out, cutting our phone lines, things like that. At the same time, at IFP National, there were some very strange goings-on happening there. And finally, the, the whole thing became very toxic. The whole situation became very toxic. And I decided it was time for me to leave, so I left. And in fact, as soon as I left, the organization fell apart and doesn't exist anymore. IFP Miami doesn't exist anymore. And so I left and I said, you know what? I just don't think that this artist life is for me. I was tired of working so hard. I was tired of being broke. I was tired of the, the as I said, the sort of toxic environment. I said, let me get out of this. And I moved into another field of a specialized field in fundraising that's called capital fundraising. So I would, I started raising millions.
niche is in the fundraising world. And uh, so I ended up moving to San Francisco and I was working there building a $38 million new YMCA. And all of a sudden I became so sick that I couldn't work anymore. And I went from one day with this fabulous big job and doing a triathlon to to suddenly having migraines every day and within two years I was too sick to work and that began a really long journey where yeah for seven years I was in bed too sick to work and uh, I don't know if anybody can even wrap their brains around what that might look like you know what I, I think most people get really scared when they're not working for two weeks or two months but it was seven years for me but that I didn't work. And I was so ill uh, with migraines that I was in bed for seven years. And I basically lost everything. I lost money, apartment, savings, IRA, retirement savings, everything. A social life, romantic life, everything. And had absolutely nothing. And I think it's really just a spiritual experience that changed my life. And when I returned to the world, I decided that if I could, if I only had the energy to work for a couple of hours a week, I would work with filmmakers and I would just do what I love because I didn't have any energy. I didn't have much time. So when I started out, I said, okay, I'm going to coach filmmakers. I'm going to leave behind me running an organization and having hundreds of members and all of this stuff and just work one-on-one -on -one with filmmakers. And I started maybe working a couple of hours a week. And now, six years later, I'm working full-time. I have my health back to a great extent. I'm somebody who's literally been sat down in a room with doctors who told me I would never work again. And here I am running a business and working with filmmakers every day, doing exactly what I love. <laughs> and uh, I, I feel as though I'm, I love to, and thank you so much, Debbie, giving me the opportunity to tell my story. I love my, to tell my story because I feel as though I'm the poster child for anything is possible. I, from where I have come from, anything really is possible. And so that's my life today. I just really see that, yep, anything is possible. I was gone so long. I was ill for so long. People literally thought that I was dead. I've had people look at me and say, oh my God, Joanne, I thought you were dead. And, uh, and here I am running my business and helping filmmakers. I have uh, I'm almost at about 100 clients, and uh, I have clients making feature films. We had um, two came out earlier this year, and another five coming in the next few months. And then one is being one is in late post production right now. Another one is, I think she finished shooting yesterday, and so they're they're coming along and i've just figured out this way of helping filmmakers to actually get their feature films made and distributed and i i, I couldn't be happier with what i do wow That's my story wow <laughs> wow wow 
What a story, Joanne. That is a real stellar story, what you've just shared with us. Wouldn't everybody agree with that? Let's give a big shout out, give a huge round of applause and clap to hear that story you've just shared with us. Absolutely incredible, Joanne. I can resonate with so many things that you shared there, Joanne, especially the journey you took at the beginning there with the turning towards because of the depression and because of the way you were treated, turning towards the drink and the drugs and then finding that spiritual awakening that there were people out there and that you could completely transform your life, which you did and took you on a absolute mega journey to such great success. But then, as you say, in Miami, it changed totally. And then for you to fall down into illness for six years and suffering with migraine, which is something I've suffered with all my life, Joanne, especially if I'm under stress. And there's nothing you can do at times. It just it completely makes you doing anything except for lay in your bed and maybe get a doctor around to put you out of that pain. Or if you're fortunate enough, like I eventually did, to find the right medication to control it. One of the things that I did for my migraine, Joanne, I'm not sure if this is a little tip for you and anybody else out there listening, is through my NLP master practitioner and uh, train the trainer coaching from Dr. Richard Bandler, I found that I could really calm my body down and my nervous system down because it's all to do with your nervous system with the migraine. And I had common migraine. I'm not sure the severity of yours, but I no way was ever held up as long as you have been with that giant. So, you know, hats off to you it's such a you know a painful experience to suffer with migraine so yeah that's an, an incredible story joanne and what you've done and turned your life around over these last years is phenomenal to have so many clients to be making so many films it's absolutely amazing what you've done now Tell us, Joanne, you turn to what you love most. I always share with people, do what you love and love what you do because that's where your freedom will come. And as you rightly share, that's what it's about, is having that freedom of choice, which is what you have done and moved forward so brilliantly and served so many people. I, I love also what I saw in your bio, Joanne, and that was that you helped people that were disabled in the film industry too. You know, t tell us a little bit more about that, Joanne. The well, that's, thank you. Oh, I love that question. So back when I was running the cinema and the film school, I would, um, for example, I found out about children with cancer and I was like, oh, okay, what do I do? So I would raise the money and then put this program together. And so it's just, it was so fascinating with the kids. My first thing with the kids was I said, you don't have to make films about your cancer just because you're all here because you've survived cancer. It doesn't mean to say you have to make films about cancer. So what would you like to make your films about? And they all said, about my cancer, because <laughs> they all wanted to tell their stories. And 
this one child, she was one of the younger ones. She was only about 12. And she had, we had them with filmmaker mentors who would handle all of the complex stuff for them. But they would write the script and they would tell their mentors what they wanted. And she wanted to have make a film where you couldn't see anything above the adult's knees. Because when she had cancer, when she was three, that's all she could see. And her experience was incredibly isolating because everybody was an adult and she was a three-year-old. And so she made her film where we never saw a person's face. It was just voices and uh, seeing people from their knees down. And she was so small and that was her experience. And she got to tell that in a film. And so what it taught me was that everybody has their own perspective. And it's that perspective which is so fascinating because who would ever have thought that? Who would ever have realized, but wait a minute, this is a three-year-old's experience of going through cancer. And so I really believe that it's our perspective that's really our story that we want to share and when people are disabled or whether they, when they have been marginalized that's why I did a lot of work with the LGBT community when people have been marginalized and their voices have really been silenced um, as mine was just by my family but that's th those are the stories that I most want to help come out and it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody is disabled or somebody's from a marginalized community. It's that we all have our perspective. We all have our story and we want to get that out. And I just happen to specialize in film, which is the great storytelling means of the 21st century. And it really incorporates all the other art forms. It incorporates writing, it incorporates music, it incorporates acting, incorporates all the other art forms. I'm just very interested in hearing as many different perspectives and voices as I possibly can. And so now I'm the one of the founders of the Slam Dance Disability Film Festival called Unstoppable. And we have a panel of programmers who are all disabled. And actually going through that experience, I finally realized I'm disabled too. I hadn't really acknowledged my own disability, but I'm disabled too. And we have all disabled programmers and we put together the festival for the first time last year. And it was truly amazing. And we just did our best going and looking for films. And it ended up that one of the films that we selected, I think we had about 12 films in the festival. One of the films got nominated for an Oscar. And it was like, wow. Wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the latest wave, I think, of marginalized people who are getting their stories out. And interestingly, last January, at Sundance, which is probably the most popular film festival in the world, the winning film that was paid the most that any film at Sundance has ever been paid for is called Coda. You can see it on Apple TV Plus, and it's a beautiful story. You will cry your eyes out. It's so lovely. And it's about a hearing woman 
who is the daughter of deaf parents. And she's the only hearing person in her family. And it's about her, her coming of age as a hearing adult and trying to find a, a, a life uh, beyond her hearing family. It's a beautiful film. And, and that was the, the film that won Sundance last year. Yeah, I think, it's, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more voices from disabled filmmakers now. It's just... Beautiful. What a beautiful share to finish on, Joanne. Now, how can our listeners uh, get in contact with you, Joanne? And also, before you do share how they can get in contact with you, what I want to share now is something very innovative that you are doing, Joanne, because you've put together something very unique. You're just about to launch your own webinar, aren't you? Because we all have a story in us, which means we all have a movie to make if we want to. If you want that freedom, we want to set ourselves free. So tell us about that, Joanne, and let's uh, hear more about this innovative idea of yours. Well, <laughs> this is great, Debbie, because I actually don't have anything yet to show anybody except the date. So the date is going to be November the 6th, which is a Saturday. And I'm going to uh, offer a webinar and I'm really basically launching my new brand. And my new brand is called the Box Office Success Formula. And basically what I finally realized is that the reason I'm able to get all my clients to actually raise money, actually make a film, actually get distribution is because I have a method, I have a formula. And so I want to share that film box office success formula with everyone. And in fact, I have clients who have never made a film before, but they have a story. And so I now know how to help people, even when they don't have any filmmaking experience whatsoever, learn how to raise the money they need to hire the professionals who do know how to make a film and get that film distributed. Yeah, I'm, thank you for that, Debbie. My website is at www.filmmakersuccess.com. And you can go over there and sign up for either, maybe my program, The Filmmaker's Life, which is a, a biweekly um, conversation that I have with filmmakers talking about how they built their careers. And in this week, we'll get together, sign up for that free webinar, which is called The Film Box Office Success Formula. And it's really, yeah, it's really, this is the step-by-step -step process that you would need to make your own film. Absolute genius, Joanne. And we are so grateful that you could come in here and share with us this genius and innovative new idea that so many people need to be hearing about. And we are delighted to have you here in the Rich Woman Society and on our on the Freedom Formula podcast. Thank you so much, Joanne, for sharing. Now, 
We're going to stop the recording uh, of the podcast, Joanne, but we would love to open up questions and answers. So thank you, Joanne. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you as my guest here today and to also have built this friendship up that we have now together over these last few months. So I feel so blessed to have you in my life. We have a new family together and that's what it's about, guys. It's about not always your blood family but it's about your heart family and that's what we feel with you you're such a beautiful lady joanne so thank you thank you this episode is sponsored by mtn press mtn press is the publishing house behind niche publications like rich human sovereign and the quantum of light magazines all british brands with a global reach they deliver the good news straight to the desk of decision makers the ceos presidents CFOs, consultants, investors, influencers, bankers, PR agencies, heads of global operations, to name just a few. They also offer specialized support through a range of bespoke services, tools, and systems to help publishers like you grow both their presence and business. Whether you are running a blog, a niche magazine, or thinking to start one, their expert knowledge in the world of publishing can give you the tools and the expertise and the confidence you need to succeed. Check them out at mtnpress.co.uk or follow the link in the episode description.